This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This podcast contains adult themes and language, and some of the things that we discuss may be disturbing to some listeners. In this podcast, we discuss sexual assault, torture, race, and murder. Listener discretion is advised. episode 110 bienvenidos bitches thank you so much for listening and happy black history month y'all fruit loops is a podcast about true crimes committed by people of color and their victims or the victims excuse me that we don't hear or know much about contrary to popular belief not all serial killers are straight cis white dudes uh-uh there are mm-hmm, it's true I'll tell you. <laughs> it's all right there are many well-documented cases of serial killers of color and fruit loops is a podcast all about them we will take deep dives into the fascinating lives of serial killers and true crimes committed by people of color and the victims that the media and entertainment commonly leave out because the news is racist allegedly and we are wendy and beth she's wendy i'm beth we're not journalists investigators or psychologists just a couple of gals interested in true crime. Also, the opinions expressed in this podcast are just that, our opinions. Please send any questions or comments to fruitloopspod at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at 602-935-6294. And we may feature it on a future episode. Also, our website is fruitloopspod.com and we use Fruit Loops Pod for all our social media. The footnotes for each episode can be found on our website. Plus, check it out for the different ways that you can support the show and become a Fruit Loops patron. So. Yeah. Who are we talking about today, Beth? Today we're talking about the zebra murders, which occurred in San Francisco, California from 1973 to 1974. They were racially motivated murders committed by a group of black men associated with a splinter group of the Nation of Islam. This will be part one of the story. We try not to do two-parters too often, but this one has so many people involved and so much to the story, we really couldn't avoid it. Mm -hmm. And also, I'm sorry, I can't recall which one of our fruities suggested this episode. So one of y'all did, but I can't remember who. Sorry. But thank you nonetheless. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So before we get into it, how you doing? I'm doing good. So I started to teach myself knitting and uh, shout out to Rondika, who I know is an avid knitter and she's one of our fruities. Yes. Yes. She's been there since the beginning Mm -hmm. and um, I'm finding it really relaxing and enjoyable and uh, it keeps 
me from emotional eating. So that's right handy. on. What have you created? <laughs> Nothing really yet. I've just been practicing stitches. Uh-huh. Um, I'm working on a scarf, but uh, I keep fucking it up. So <laughs> I keep starting it over again. But I, I'm just really trying different stitches and practicing. That's all I'm doing right now. But it's fun. That is so dope. Um, shout out to self-care. Um, I bought crochet hooks uh-huh. and yarn because you can get yarn at the dollar store now. Dollar oh, store. Wow. Shout out to the dollar store. Sweet. Um, and uh, I mean, they don't have like a ton of exciting colors. But yeah, still, but something to start with. Yeah. Uh, but turns out all that stuff is very challenging and you have to have <laughs> patience for it. Uh, well, uh, God bless YouTube. <laughs> Yes, yes, indeed. Um, But I am like really envious that you picked that up. And I I really do wish I could learn. I just need to have more patience. But yeah, I think it's just one of those things you just have to keep doing because I'm not any good at it right now. (laughs) (laughs) I can't I I find it hard to believe that you won't be good at it for not long because you are very like handy and crafty. Y'all, Beth has a degree in arts. Okay. (laughs) Don't tell me. Don't come over here and tell me that you're not going to be good at knitting in two weeks. (laughs) I won't believe it. I refuse. I'm going to keep trying. I'm going to keep trying. (laughs) Um, Well, good. That's awesome. That's what I, I, really actually am thinking of giving it another go but um yeah you might as well yeah sure. why not why not and the kid when i can finally get back together again in person have a little we'll, knitting party yeah have a little knitting party oh <laughs> my god will there be weed and drugs involved oh then sure okay great why not <laughs> bring the drugs doing drugs <laughs> and knitting <laughs> um <laughs> but anyway i think that's really cool uh yeah more meh. Uh, but we've been doing a lot of uh, moving the self-care conversation along in our house because the kids are bored and they yeah, hate I the bet. Rona. They hate this bitch Rona. <laughs> yeah, I uh, can only imagine. Yeah, so um, we've been, uh, like I said, moving the self-care conversation along and I, I've been um, saying <laughs> things like, um, oh, it's time for mommy to have my self-care chocolates. Time for mommy to take a self-care nap. Uh, And the kids are like picking it up and they're like, uh, oh, I think it's time for my self-care screen time. (laughs) Uh, And I'm like, no, the hell it isn't. (laughs) Did you self-care clean your room? Like. (laughs) Anyway, when I was a kid, we moved around a lot. And uh-huh. uh, so when we would move to a new place, we wouldn't have any friends, uh, nobody to hang out with. We, it was almost like the Rona, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I spent a lot of time at home. And uh-huh. so I think the reason why I got into arts and crafts is because my mom would take us to the craft store and be like, uh, pick something out. Oh. And so we would get to pick out crafts to try. Mm-hmm. So tried all kinds of different crafts and uh, probably kept us out of her hair too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I, I think that there is just something um, in hu- human about using tools and creating things. Yeah. And uh, it is really um, relaxing and uh, really gets, you know, it the is. creative yeah. juices flowing and can calm your nerves and, and all the things. Yeah. So uh, shout out to Arts and Crafts and uh, <laughs> uh, look at us over here. I know. Yeah. We're 
<laughs> we're, yeah, we're really, we are so hard. We are just so gangsta over here at Prelude. We're over here knitting and doing arts and motherfucking crafts. Watch out for us. Ask Watch about out. us. We're yeah. coming for you. Act, yeah, act, don't mess with us. <laughs> uh, well, <laughs> that's enough of that. Now we're going to get into some listener letters. Oh, they look so pretty today. Oh, what did they bring us? What's in that bag, Beth? Well, Robbie via Apple Podcasts said, greatest podcast ever. These two are amazing. Whoa, that is so nice. (laughs) I love they make me laugh and are also well-informed and very passionate about this podcast. I love that it has enlightened me and also informed me. And I think I was a black woman in my last life. Ha ha ha. People see amazing work, ladies. You make me feel like I'm always welcome to the barbecue and it feels good. You guys are the best. I started this podcast in December and binge to your break in January. Wow. (laughs) Oh, my goodness gracious. Longest week waiting for you to come back. Glad you're back. Thank you so much, Robbie. Thank you. It is so nice to be back. And thank you for those kind ass words. Hell yeah. Thank you, Robbie. All right. I see you, boo. I also (laughs) wanted to mention that we got a couple of reviews uh, that were saying that were being serial killer sympathizers. Mm. And I just wanted to explain that we don't sympathize with serial killers, mm-hmm. but no. we do seek to learn why people become serial killers. And that involves, you know, finding out about their early lives and stuff. And we have empathy for the children they once were, uh, certainly, as they have almost always been abused in some way, shape or form. Mm-hmm. Their serial killers are not born bad uh normally they're they're created yeah and so we seek to understand because we feel like the more that you know about what creates serial killers the more you can do to circumvent the uh creation of more serial killers so yeah that's why we seek to understand them and i don't feel like it's sympathizing I don't think so either. And I think, I mean, true crime, the genre is not going away. I think, right. um, and, and if you, if you think that, okay, you could just stop this podcast right now and go listen to something <laughs> else. We're going to go turn yeah. this car around. <laughs> but um, I do think one of the things that is, or I think an element that's really fascinating and, and um, captivating about it is this, the idea of the monster the the monster you know the monster that right. could be inside us or the monster next door you know yeah. and uh you know the more you know the easier it is to identify those monsters yeah, or prevent, exactly. them, prevent them from happening also right. i wonder about critic it's easier to criticize women for speaking uh their you know about talk for talking about anything <laughs> and right. uh and so i wonder if the criticism was from a male, like a Google, you know, that Google guy who wrote yeah. the letter. <laughs> Google yeah. guy, is that you? <laughs> so I, th- I think uh, a lot of true crime stories, uh, they talk about the killers like they're monsters. You know, they uh-huh. it's black and white. This guy did these horrible things. He's horrible. Um, and that's it. Mm-hmm. And so um, they don't really think about 
contact this guy. Yeah. Contact how this guy became the way that he did. He's just a monster. Uh And so I think um, maybe sometimes if you listen to a podcast or they talk more about the dynamics, uh, the history, Uh um, the the killer's early life and stuff Uh like that, maybe it sounds like sympathizing. I don't know. Yeah, I, I'm not hearing it. My ears are not commute, computing <laughs> it as sympathy. But thank you for pointing connecting. that out because now we got to yeah, now we got to have a discussion about it. So yeah, thanks Google guy. <laughs> uh, now we uh, got some new patrons in Patreon. So yeah. uh, Dale T, thank you so much. Charles H, hey man, I miss my uncle Charles, y'all. <laughs> and Katie W. So here are your tunes. Hope you don't hate them because uh, I do love you. All right. So for Dale, here we go. Cash rules everything around me. Cream, get the money. Dale, Dale T, y'all. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, that is an homage to Wu-Tang, which is relevant Ooh. to today's episode. Um, and uh, Charles H. I was born by the river in a little tent. Oh, and just like the river I've been running ever since it's been a long a long time coming but i know charles gonna come oh yes he will Ooh, that was pretty (laughs) hey you're welcome charles Uh, (laughs) and katie this is for you pour up the whole damn seal i'm gonna get katie I got the true crime deals we've been putting since the 80s. Hey, <laughs> that was a tough one, but woo, got through it. And I hope you enjoyed it. Hip hop air horns to all of y'all who, you yeah. know, can support our show. Whoa, yeah, that we one. really appreciate it. <laughs> we do. That one might have woke up the kids. <laughs> Whoopsies. Whoopsies. Here, let me do it again. Thank you. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours. Like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Horton's new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply. Yeah, Uh, thanks. Yeah, so uh, remind us who our subject is today, Beth. Today we're talking about the zebra murders, which were execution-style shootings that killed at least 15 people and wounded eight others between October 1973 and April 1974, mostly at night along the city's Divisadero Street neighborhood. The perpetrators were black and the victims were mostly white. Now we're going to get into some stats. (laughs) Woo-hoo! 
All right. The zebra murders were um uh, uh, the zebra murderers were at least four black American men Matt named Manuel Moore, Larry Green, Jesse Lee Cooks, and JCX Simon. They were associated with the NOI, that's Nation of Islam. And these men were responsible for the deaths of 15 people and wounded eight to 10. I guess it depends on which source you're looking at. But uh, the crime took place from 1973 to 1974 in San Francisco, uh, California. They deliberately targeted white Americans. And we will list the victims' names. Rest in power. Keita Haig, 28. Francis Rose was 28 years old. Salim Arakat was 53. Paul Danzig, 26. Marietta Digarolamo, Ilario uh, Bertuccio, 81. Neil Moynihan, 19. Mildred Hostler, 50. Uh, there's an unidentified John Doe victim, age unknown. Tana Smith, 32. Vincent Wolin, 69. John Bambick, 84. Jane Holly, 45. Thomas Rainwater, 19 years old. Nelson T. Shields, the fourth, uh, was 23. And these are the, the wounded victims who survived the attacks. Uh, Richard Haig was 30. Robert Stokeman, 26. Art Agnos, 36. Teresa DeMartini, 20. Thomas Bates. Uh, Roxanne McMillan was 23. Linda Story was 21. Ward Anderson. Uh, Terry White was 15. And Fred Wagner. Um, so shout out to the surviving um, victims. And why were they called the zebra murders, you ask? Well, because zebras are black and white and the killers were black and the victims were white. But a bing, but a boom. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> that's I know that that's what I thought when that's what everybody we first thinks, yeah. decided to research the case. And I think this was one of the when we first started like talking about a podcast and doing episodes. This has been on our list for almost three for years. a long time. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but uh, it, the name comes from the police formed a task force and dedicated the Z channel on their radios um, to communicate during their manhunt and the manhunt task force. Uh, eventually became codenamed Zebra. So hence the zebra murders. And now yeah. we're going to get into the setting. Take us there, Beth. So the setting is San Francisco, California, which sits on the land of the Rometus Alone peoples. Prior to the arrival of the Spanish in, the, in 1769, the Rometus Alone numbered approximately 1,400 people, and they lived in 11 tribelets. Mm. Which I New guess word. are little tribes. Little yeah. Tribe. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> Most descendants of the indigenous groups in the San Francisco Bay Area refer to themselves as Olone, while a few others use Costa Noan. Uh, so let's jump ahead a little bit to 1967. During the Summer of Love, people were fucking in San Francisco's hate atmosphere. <laughs> Fuck, fucking? <laughs> fucking. Summer of Love. Whoops. <laughs> okay. <laughs> people over. were fucking all over the place. <laughs> Don't you just assume that's what Summer that's Love meant? That's probably what was happening. You yeah. were there, weren't you? <laughs> <laughs> I was uh, two. Okay, never mind. Uh, okay, so let's jump ahead to 1967. During the Summer of Love, people were flocking to San Francisco's Haight-Ashbury district from all over the world, drawn by the city's hippie culture. Uh, and as many as 100,000 people converged in San Francisco's neighborhood of Haight-Ashbury. This was 
was also at the tail end of the civil rights movement. This was a very turbulent time in San Francisco and the rest of the country. One of the major players in the civil rights movement was Malcolm Little, a.k.a. AKA Malcolm X. He adopted the last name X to represent his rejection of his slave name. Mm. He had joined the religious group, the Nation of Islam, and went on to become the minister at Mosque Number no. 7 in Harlem, where his oratory skills and sermons gained the organization New Recruits. I just think he's such a fascinating guy. Um, yeah. If you can read about him or watch Denzel Washington's movie about him, yeah. like it's, it's, it's just really cool. And also, welcome to Culture Corner. I don't know if white people hear the slave name thing and understand what that means. I do now, but I don't think I would have prior to doing this podcast. Well, that's why you're my favorite white lady. <laughs> um, but when Black people refer to their slave names, basically, Black people were enslaved. Their names, their first names were given to them, and their last names were also assigned to them based on who their owner was. Right. Um, and once emancipation happened, uh, they they kept or, or kept the names as they moved treaded forward in in their lives and uh little is most likely his ancestors uh plantation owner or master's last name right. so yeah so the uh nation of islam is an african-american political and new religious movement founded in detroit michigan by wallace fard muhammad in 1930 Fard disappeared though in june 1934 his successor was elijah muhammad and there were a number of splits or splinter groups during elijah muhammad's leadership at the time of elijah muhammad's death in 1975 there were 75 nation of islam centers across america the nation's leadership chose Wallace Muhammad, also known as Warith Dean Muhammad, the fifth of Elijah's sons. Critics have described the theology of the organization as promoting anti-Semitism and anti-LGBTQ rhetoric and of promoting racial separatism, Black nationalism, and of having promoted Black supremacist beliefs in the past. Uh, the Southern Poverty Law Center tracks the NOI as a hate group, which it claims teaches a theology of innate Black superiority over whites. They classify them as a hate group um, because they, right, because they think that they hate um, white people. So, right. In 1977, Louis Farrakhan worked to rebuild the Nation of Islam on the original foundation established by Wallace Fard Muhammad and Elijah Muhammad, and he took over the Nation of Islam's headquarters temple in Chicago, Illinois. The NOI grew from 400 members in 1952 to 40,000 by 1960. Wow. Yeah. Malcolm X's admirers included celebrities like Muhammad Ali. Uh, he argued uh, or he urged his fellow black Americans to protect themselves against white aggression, quote, by any means necessary and quote, very famous quote, uh, which put him at odds with Martin Luther King Jr.'s nonviolent approach to gaining ground in the growing civil rights movement. And the media tries to say that, like, put them pit them against each other, but they really did have tremendous mutual respect for each other. Malcolm X left the Nation of Islam in December of 1963. A few months later, he traveled to Mecca, where he underwent a spiritual transformation. He was profoundly affected by the lack of racial discord among Orthodox Muslims. Quote, the true brotherhood I have seen had influenced me to recognize that anger can blind human vision, unquote. He's got a lot of fire quotes. Um, yeah. 
<laughs> Malcolm X uh, <laughs> returned to America with a new name, uh, El Elijah Malik El Shabazz. In June 1964, he founded the Organization of Afro-American Unity, which identified racism and not the white race as the enemy of justice. But on February 21st, 1965, Malcolm X was assassinated at an Afro-American Unity rally in the Audubon Ballroom in New York City. Another player in the civil rights movement was the Black Panther Party. Party for Self-Defense, or the Black Panthers, which was founded in October of 1966 in the wake of the assassination of Malcolm X. And after police in San Francisco shot and killed an unarmed Black teen named Matthew Johnson. The Black Panthers' early activities primarily involved monitoring police activities in Black communities in Oakland and other cities. And um, at the time, it was revolutionary. And I think it really freaked freaked out out, white people because they were like, wait a minute. (laughs) <laughs> They're defending themselves. Wait a minute. Uh, so the they organized neighborhood police patrols that took advantage of open carry laws. This is when everything changed the United States. Patrolling yeah. the streets dressed in black leather jackets and black berets. And the white people freaked the fuck it, out. Woo, Ronald Reagan yeah. went right away to change those gun laws. <laughs> Where's my pen? Not <laughs> <Law> changed. <laughs> There was a faction of the civil rights movement that began calling for the uplift and self-determination of African-Americans, and soon Black Power was part of that platform. The Black Power movement argued that Black Americans should focus on creating economic, social, and political power of their own, rather than seek integration into white-dominated society. I think that's an interesting idea, because another culture corner when you think of segregation and jim crow those are those were institutions created by white people and honestly not all black americans were like woo integration um <laughs> only only because uh of how dan- i think how dangerous it was um and my take on the people who were against uh, the black people who were not standing for integration, they just wanted not to be kept from doing ongoing places, right? Like, just, yeah. just kind of let me live. Like, we don't have like, to be me, best friends, but can I, can I please get a drink of water and be left alone? Like, yeah, that's all. So as they instituted a number of social programs and engaged in political activities, the popularity of the Black Panthers grew. At its peak in 1968, the Black Panther Party had roughly 2,000 members. They started a number of popular community social programs, including free breakfast programs for school children and free health clinics in 13 American communities across the United States, which I just think is incredible. Yeah. While the Black Panthers were often portrayed as a gang, their leadership saw the organization as a political party whose goal was getting more African-Americans elected to political office. But the Black Panthers, quote, socialist message, unquote, and Black nationalist focus made them the target of a secret FBI counterintelligence program. In 1969, the FBI under J. Edgar Hoover, who hated the Black Panthers. I'm so glad you said that. (laughs) (laughs) Declared the Black Panthers a communist organization and an enemy of the United States government. What a dickbag. Yeah. And I think I think at the time the FBI was there was this fear of communism. Yeah. The McCarthyism and all that. Yeah. 
the FBI assumed that black people would be attracted to the idea of communism for good reason. Right. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. And they also they did promote social programs mm-hmm. like the breakfast program and the free clinic. So mm-hmm. obviously they're communists. Obviously. And I think even <laughs> Martin Luther King was like, I'm surprised more black people aren't interested in communism, uh, America. <laughs> like, <laughs> but uh, they really weren't. I mean, look, by no fault of black people's own, we're here. We've been here for centuries, and we look. We're American, whether you like it or not. Uh, so anyway, the FBI worked to weaken the Panthers by exploiting existing rivalries between black nationalist groups. Um, they also undermine or work to undermine and dismantle the free breakfast for children program and other community social programs instituted by the Black Panthers, which what in the actual fuck? <laughs> Yeah, they were doing, they were being the messiest of hoes, uh, hiring um, spies to infiltrate um, these organizations and try to take the crime inside. It was, it's really awful. Yeah. In 1969, Chicago police gunned down and killed Black Panther Party members Fred Hampton and Mark Clark, who were asleep in their apartment. And uh, we've discussed this story before. Mm -hmm. About 100 bullets were fired in what police described as a fierce gun battle with members of the Black Panther Party. However, ballistics experts later determined that only one of those bullets came from the Panther's side. Hmm. Although the FBI was not responsible for leading the raid, a federal grand jury later indicted that the, or indicated, sorry. <laughs> yeah, indict them all. <laughs> I'm out of here. A <laughs> uh, uh, federal grand jury later indicated that the Bureau played a significant role in the events leading up to the raid. On April 4th, 1968, Martin Luther King Jr. was also assassinated on the balcony of his hotel room in Memphis, Tennessee. And as the 60s grew to an end, life in San Francisco got more violent and disturbing. The drugs got harder. By 1971, 15% of the servicemen returning from Vietnam were addicted to heroin. The use of psychedelics like LSD were being replaced by heroin and speed. Mm. Yeah, uh, I got to say, I just think that um, when there is an increase in substance use and abuse uh, in a society, I think it's maybe because there's a lot of pain. And yeah. rather than something happening, something's going, there's it's something happening here. Yeah. What it is ain't exactly clear, yeah. except it is. So why don't you fix society? Uh, it's it's I don't know. The the people in power seem to punish the behavior rather than punishing the thing. They're trying to fix what's happening. Yeah. yeah. Um, anyway, the Zodiac killer, ever heard of him, was also <laughs> active in the area from the late 60s to the early 70s. Then there was Jim Jones and the People's Temple and the Milk Moscone murders. I've never heard of that one. Harvey Milk. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Golly. Uh Man, what a turbulent time. Several several groups were using violent terrorist tactics at the same time as the zebra murders. The Weather Underground, the New World Liberation Front, uh, the Symbionese Liberation Army. Remember those folks who killed, kidnapped Patty Hearst? Yeah. I got them. The Black Liberation Army and others all used violence in their efforts to bring about change. Although... This is a critique of society. I think 
that take is subjective. This is my take uh, that it that that the use of violence is subjective because I think one could argue that the dominant white American society is a violent and oppressive one. And these groups um, were just not willing to wait for things to get better or yield um, to the oppression anymore. So, yeah. Yeah. I think that when uh, people are not being listened to and like, especially with the case with the Black Panthers, where they're being actively destroyed, like their mm-hmm. their organization is being destroyed, mm-hmm. um, they turn to violence. Uh, yeah. Again, I mean, I, th- I think of Angela Davis, who was accused of maybe killing an FBI agent and uh, she went on trial and she won. Right. Um, but uh, yeah, there's there there was a, a very um, tactical and s- with a surgical um, attack or an assault on um, black groups, black liberation yeah. groups. And I'm yeah. I think part of the we always say the news is racist at the top of this show. And I think a lot of the storytelling and the narrative at the time was ah, these violent black people and J. Edgar Hoover and his agency were not helping the narrative. Yeah, so. yeah. So the city was rocked by a series of bombings committed by radical underground groups, including a bomb left in a seized candy box outside the home of Mayor Joseph Aliado. So uh, it was a crazy ass time, as we mentioned. Yeah, I don't know. We should get the crazy ass time clicker like to see how many times we say it because, man, oh, man. We should make a T-shirt. It was a crazy ass time. It was. Man, we tell you how to look alive. For a reason. Uh, Interesting side note, uh, the Nation of Islam since 2010 under Farrakhan, members have been strongly encouraged to study Dianetics, the book by L. Ron Hubbard, the father of Scientology. And the NOI claims it has trained uh, 1,055 auditors. In recent years, the embrace of Dianetics under Farrakhan has drawn criticism that the Nation of Islam is becoming too close to the Church of Scientology and the ideas of its founder, L. Ron Hubbard, whom Farrakhan has said he respects. And, oh, I feel like there's so many culture corners, I'm running out of breath. <laughs> but I, <laughs> Farrakhan, the NOI, none of these figures or organizations are perfect, right? But this right. is an imperfect um, society that we live in, and especially as Black Americans, we got to do a lot of compartmentalization. So um, <laughs> take, take, take that for what you want. So NOI sister Charlene Muhammad, a correspondent for NOI's newspaper, The Final Call, received the, quote, Dianetics Auditor of the Year Award in 2018. Wow. In her Yeah, this is just a couple years ago. In her acceptance speech, she thanked in order Minister Louis Farrakhan, David Miscavige, who's the leader of the Church of Scientology, and, quote, most of all, L. Ron Hubbard, unquote. I just think it's really interesting that the they're getting into Scientology, which I, I hate Scientology. So, yeah. And all, <laughs> all I know from Scientology is Tom Cruise and Leah Remini's reality show that may yeah. sound like it is um, uh, not to be messed with. Like, I'm afraid yeah. to say anything bad about Scientology. Uh, against, the, against Scientology. Yeah. yeah I mean, if, like I said, I don't know that much about it, but um, L. Ron Hubbard. It's a, it's a cult. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, these organizations aren't perfect. I don't want anybody to come for me, but they it is it is what it is. I was really surprised that 
there was a whole ass award in 2018 with a speech. Yeah. <laughs> Dianetics <laughs> Auditor of the Year. Yeah, like what what hotel <laughs> what hotel this gig? I'm just curious. Yeah. So uh, just an interesting side note for y'all. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I'm Sean McCabe. And I'm Carrie McCabe. We are, well, married, obviously, (laughs) but we're also obsessed with the darker side of things. True crime stories, alien abductions, poltergeists. If it leaves you scratching your head and keeping those lights on at night, we want to hear about it. That's why we host the podcast Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Every week, we bring our listeners a true story guaranteed to send chills down your spine, from history's most brutal serial killers to the mystery of spontaneous human combustion. Yep, lots of these stories leave unanswered questions behind, and you'll get to poke through the rubble of the evidence with a hardened skeptic and... Someone whose mind is more open to fun. Yeah, that's what I was going to (laughs) say. You can find Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie wherever you get your podcasts, and on social media at Ain't It Scary. Come play with us. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939 when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era like Cuba and Vietnam, And I'll unpack the conspiracy theories, too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st. So now we're going to get into the early life of men. There's a lot of players involved. So first... Anthony Cornelius Harris was born and raised in Southern California, Santa Ana, Long Beach, Long Beach, Inglewood. And he was the eldest of a large poor family. He had five brothers and two sisters. At 14, he was declared mentally defective and committed to an institution. At some point, he married a white woman and the couple had two children. Uh, He also studied Kung Fu and eventually became a fifth Dan or degree Kung Fu expert. And I don't, I'm just going to say it. Niggas love Kung Fu. (laughs) And and I've always wondered why. Um, And uh, one thing that people should know uh, is, is that it's a fact and it's something I think people know on like a visceral level. And uh, I, I did some looking into it. So this was evident in the 1970s at the height of black exploitation movies and Kung Fu movies. Um, and there's several reasons why black people love Kung Fu. Um, global solidarity between people who are suffering racial oppression, right? Uh, Chinese right. people and black people in the United States. Um, and, uh, some say that there's a spiritual connection between black American and Asian cultures. Um, and at the time there was a large influx of Kung Fu films and black people just 
ate it up. Um, and, the, and the civil rights movement was in full swing, maybe at this at this point in our story, uh, dwindling down or um, evolving. Um, with, but along with that came ideas of Black empowerment, Black beauty, and self-love. And um, like I said, even before like looking for like reasons why this is true, I have understood, on, again, on a visceral level, as a little girl, that kung fu films showed the non-white guy as the hero. Oh, right, uh, right. And the non—it wasn't the white guy who got the girl. It was yeah. the, it was the the the, the Asian guy, the uh, kung fu master, the kung fu master, and he took care of business and his community. And the white people were the villains in the movie. And it's like, wow, <laughs> oh, that makes a lot of sense. Totally. Yeah. Uh, and it's you know victory over oppression, good versus evil, in a way that white American cinema at the time, maybe even to this day hasn't been honest about so yeah that makes sense yeah so anthony harris often clashed with police and on january 3rd 1969 he was convicted for assaulting a policeman he served two and a half years at san quentin and he was released from prison in may 1970 when he won a reversal of his sentence at the california supreme court but in 1971 harris uh was again arrested and convicted this time for second degree burglary in los angeles and he was again sent to san quentin while incarcerated at san quentin harris became a member of the nation of islam and he also met two of the future quote zebra killers manuel moore and jesse lee cooks manuel leonard moore was born in southern california and raised in san bernardino county he had six brothers and seven sisters including white stepbrothers and stepsisters who were children of his white stepmother uh-oh uh <laughs> doesn't that <laughs> that sounds like it could be a movie title white stepmother uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> i bet that would be a good movie <laughs> Yeah, White Stepmother in theaters 2022. Uh, so he, he was in trouble for petty thefts from his early teens on and was either expelled or suspended from schools on a regular basis. He had a speech impediment. Although he reached ninth grade, he could not read or write. Uh, I'm not sure if it's at all or just not very well. And he was regularly beaten by his father and eventually ran away from home. He had a long rap sheet consisting of robbery, battery, burglary, rape, drug possession, and other minor violations. Hey. <laughs> it depends on your on your, <laughs> your perspective. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he ended up in San Quentin for second degree burglary and was paroled after two years and three months. He was jailed once more for burglary 13 months after his release. During this one year sentence, he met Anthony Harris and Jesse Lee Cooks and embraced Islam. Uh, he was later employed at the Black Self-Help Moving and Storage Company. Black Self-Help was owned and managed by Thomas Manny and was in the business of moving, storing, repairing, and selling furniture and other items. Manny organized Black Self-Help in 1967. He was a member of the Nation of Islam and had a policy of providing jobs for Black Muslims on their release from prison. Jesse Lee Cooks was raised in East St. Louis, and the eldest he was the eldest of four siblings. As a boy, he had tried to smother his sleeping mother with a pillow. <laughs> Out of love? <laughs> or something. Okay. <laughs> you know, you smother somebody with kisses or smother somebody with hugs. Then you smother somebody with a pillow. Okay. <laughs> he was committed to the Illinois State Training School for Delinquent Boys after after he tried to kill his mom. Wow. 
Wow. I, I don't know why I'm laughing. I'm just, I, it's not funny, but. I mean, well, it is certainly some foreshadowing. Yeah. Yeah. After his release, his family moved to Omaha, where he was enrolled in technical junior high school. He eventually dropped out in ninth grade. Cooks married in 1963 at 18, fathered four children, and later moved to Los Angeles, where he briefly worked as a parking lot attendant. But he soon turned to robbery as a means to support his family. After he was caught robbing banks, he was imprisoned at several federal correctional facilities before he was paroled out. He then discovered that his wife had borne two children that were not his while he was on the inside. Uh-oh. So, yeah, so he refused to live with her and moved to Omaha, then New Orleans, and then Chicago. He was again arrested for violating parole, and he spent six months at San Quentin, where he met Anthony Harris, Manuel Moore, and he embraced Islam. According to Harris, Cooks told him that when he got out of prison, he was going to join the, quote, Death Angels, end quote, which Harris said was a group of black men whose objective it was to kill white people and start a race war. Harris later testified that while in prison about all Cooks talked about was killing white people. More on Cooks wanted to learn Kung Fu, so Harris began to teach them. According to Harris, Cooks wanted to learn Kung Fu so that he could kill white people, quote, because they had castrated and killed our ancestors and stomped our babies' heads in, unquote. Cooks had particularly savage fantasies about killing white kids, telling his Muslim brothers that he wanted to pick them up and smash their brains out against the wall. Wow. Um, well, I will tell you that the uh, quote about what white people used to do to uh, black uh, true. people yeah. is not untrue. Although, yeah. man, that guy is really angry. Um mm-hmm. After his release in June of 1973, Cooks was employed at the Shabazz Sandwich Shop, uh, its name relating to the tribe of Shabazz, an ancient black nation, according to the Nation of Islam, and it was located right next to the NOI Temple Number 26. After Harris was paroled on October 15, 1973, he moved to San Francisco. There he became acquainted with Larry Craig Green, who helped him get a job at Black Self-Help Moving and Storage Company. While Larry Craig Green, a.k.a. Larry 9X, I wonder what that's about. I understand the X. I don't know where the 9 comes from, though. (laughs) Anyway, a.k.a. Larry 9X was born and raised in Berkeley. Uh, He came from a decent home and family in one of the most affluent African-American American neighborhoods in the Bay Area, and he had three sisters. He graduated from high school where he had been a basketball star. He later dropped out of college and joined the Nation of Islam. And in 1972, he was employed at the Black Self-Help Moving and Storage Company, and he had never been incarcerated. Harris also became acquainted with JCX Simon at this time. Born J.C. Simon on May 5, 1945 in Appaloosas, Louisiana, his family then moved to Beaumont, Texas. The fourth of eight siblings, his parents separated when he was 10. He worked as a busboy and attended Lincoln High School. Simon was accepted at Texas College in Tyler, but dropped out after three years of irregular attendance. In 1970, he married and fathered a daughter and then relocated to Houston, H-Town Bitches, and worked as a food selector in a grocery supply store for a while. Uh, When he embraced Islam in the 1970s, he left his wife because of his newfound faith and returned to Beaumont. On the advice of older fellow member of the Nation of Islam, he moved to San Francisco, where he was arrested for possession of a stolen gun shortly 
after his arrival. In January 1971, he started working at the Black Self-Help Moving and Storage Company as Thomas Manny's assistant manager, and he eventually remarried. Soon, Harris uh, was reunited with Jesse Cooks, who had been paroled in July. The release of Manuel Moore followed in November. Anthony Harris, Manuel Moore, Larry Green, Jesse Lee Cooks, and J.C.X. Simon all became members of the Fringe Group under the banner of the Nation of Islam. As we mentioned in the history section, there were a number of splits and splinter group during Elijah Muhammad's tenure uh, at the NOI. Although Cooks was not employed at Black Self-Help, he was frequently at the store. All of the Black Self-Help employees and their wives or girlfriends were members or in the process of becoming members of the Nation of Islam Temple 26. They were commonly known as Muslims or Black Muslims. So now we're going to get into the timeline. Um, upstairs in the Black Self-Help storage store was a large room where meetings were sometimes held. There was usually a speaker or a leader. Additionally, According to Harris, Simon held meetings at his apartment. Harris later testified that Simon talked about, quote, death angels, and that if a person wanted to join the death angels, he would have to kill four white children or five or six white women and nine white men. That is a tall order. Yeah. <laughs> Simon, quote, quoted some lessons about killing the white devil, unquote. He quoted from some type of binder. Simon had a three ring loose leaf binder, which contained, among other things, Muslim literature and material used in processing a person for membership in the Nation of Islam. It did include references to white people as devils who, for various reasons, had to be killed. According to Harris, they wanted to create a race war as the first step in the revolution to come. Wow. Um, that whole idea of a race war is just, um, it's so silly to me. Yeah. Because um, where does it, it doesn't get us anywhere. Where does it end? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. What, what happens when yeah. you're all done with your race war? <laughs> yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, I just, it doesn't, I, I just, ugh. I don't, I don't no like sense. the idea. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but uh, it must be said that several members of the group later testified that the meetings, as described by Harris, never happened. They testified that they had never heard of, quote, death angels, end quote, and they denied they ever discussed killing white people. Simon testified that Harris ha was never in his apartment and other witnesses testified they had never seen Harris in Simon's apartment or in the building. Green testified that he never took Harris to his apartment or Simon's apartment, but that Harris had visited him in his apartment two or three times after he married. From October 20th through 1973 to April 20th, 1974, San Francisco was shaken by a series of random, brutal attacks against white people. The perpetrators were at first thought to be alone uh, or was thought to be at first a lone black gunman. In October 1973, according to Harris, he and Green visited Cooks in his apartment. Cooks asked Harris if he could get him a gun, and he asked Harris if he, quote, wanted to go out and kill some people with him, unquote. Harris said he wasn't interested. <laughs> Maybe he had other things to do with eh, the no movie. Thanks. I'm not yeah. interested. Yeah, not tonight. I mean, uh, <laughs> my program's on. Uh, Cooks. <laughs> gotta watch my stories. Watch yeah, exactly. Uh, Cooks went into another room when he returned he said he had a gun and then retrieved a machete from under the mattress of his bed green then said that they could use his van to quote go out to make some hits end quote cooks wanted to know the exact area where they were going and quote 
take some people, end quote. Harris said he did not know the city very well. Green said he knew the city and they could go with him. Cooks and Harris then went out and drove around the city with Green in his van. Cooks talked about killing some white people. They drove around for about three hours, but according to Harris, they didn't hurt anybody that night. I just gotta say this. Um, so they're they're like, yeah, we gotta we gotta kill these white devils, kill these white people, the, these zebra murderers, right? right? But throughout history, menacing white perps have sort of done the same thing. Even yeah. even in 2020, that that man who went to the Walmart to shoot. Mexicans, right? Right. Um, or the the um, the the Jew- Jewish synagogues uh, that were um, attacked, targeted, targeted. Yeah. yeah. And um, some the sources I was looking at were sounded really angry, like foaming at the mouth, angry at the zebra murderers. Murder is right. murder is not cool, right? Like I I'm not like woo murder, right? That's right. an interesting point. Yeah, but uh, these gentlemen are not the only ones with attitudes against people who they believe have done them wrong. So yeah, uh, that's a really interesting point because, um, as you said, this this has happened in the past, and people do say like, "Oh, that's awful," mm-hmm. but then you know they turn the page. But this story, people were like, "Oh my." god yeah. they're killing white people you know which not yeah not good i'm not saying that it's good but it, the reaction is just so so different yeah 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 almost um you know like you feel like it should be equal right but yeah uh, like the reaction should be equal and fair but it, it really just isn't but it's not yeah so on the night of October 20th, 1973, Harris stood at a bus stop waiting to be taken home from his job at the Black Self-Help. When Larry Green pulled up in his van next to Green in the passenger seat sat Jesse Lee Cooks. They offered Harris a ride home and he accepted. They drove around for a while, then parked near a school on Francis Street. According to Harris, Cooks and Green left the van and Harris remained in the van and watched Cooks and Green walk up a hill towards a house where three children, Michelle Carrasco and Marie and Frankie Stewart, were playing in the front yard. Oh, so this was broad daylight, no? On, on the night. So oh, okay. I guess it was in the evening, probably. Okay. Yikes. Uh, Cooks and Green attempted to kidnap the three ch- or the ch- children, but they were able to get away and the three men fled the scene in the van. Green then drove to Broadway in the North Beach area of the city. Cooks told Green to park near Powell and Chestnut Streets in a residential neighborhood. A few minutes later, the three men spotted a young white couple, Richard and Keita Haig, strolling nearby. Richard, 30, worked as a mining engineer for the San Francisco office of Utah International. Keita, 28, was a reporter for the Industrial City Press in South San Francisco. The previous month, they had celebrated their seventh wedding anniversary, and they were out for an evening stroll. Oh, it sounds lovely. Um, Cook stopped the Hags, asking for directions. Then he shoved a pistol in the back of Richard Hag and forced the couple into the rear of the van. Immediately after Mr. and Mrs. Haig were placed in the van, a San Francisco police car with officers Bruce uh, Maravik and Benjamin McAllister stopped next to the van to inquire whether anything was wrong. Cooks walked up to the police car and said, everything's all right, officer. And we had a flat tire and we're fixing it. After Cooks told the officers everything was all right, the officers drove away. Yikes. Mm, yeah, imagine. The Hags were bound and beaten and some accounts say that Keto was sexually assaulted. 
during the beating, Richard Haig was knocked out. So at a certain point, he, he doesn't know what happened. The men drove to a remote spot in the San Francisco Industrial District where Kita was yanked from the van and thrown to the ground. Harris later testified that Green then raised the machete above his head and started slicing and chopping away at the woman's neck. He got blood all over him. Uh, Harris said, quote, Larry came over with the knife and said something about you ought to have seen all the blood gush out of her neck, end quote. One of the investigators later said that he had never seen wounds like that. They took your breath away. The wounds were across Kita's face, neck, shoulders, chest, and torso. And there was tearing in most of the cuts, so she was on her back struggling, trying to maneuver away from the blade as it came towards her. What a nightmare. Ooh, Yeah terrifying. Uh, Cooks pulled Richard out of the van, took the machete from Green, and started whacking the man with it. He slashed Richard Haig about the face and back of the head. The men then left the scene, believing Richard was dead. At about 11 p.m., a couple was driving nearby when they came across Richard Haig, staggering out of the darkness with his hands tied behind his back and severely injured. The couple stopped untied Haig's hands and noticed severe lacerations on Haig's face, neck, and head, and that he appeared to be in a state of shock. I can only imagine. On Instagram, people post photos of traumatic injuries. Mm -hmm. There's one that's floated around of a dude who's been machete chopped. Not his whole body, but it's like stuck in his neck. Oh my God. The machete got stuck in his neck? Yeah. Oh my God. Anyway, uh, so yeah, when you say sounds bad, it's bad. It's bad. Anyway, yeah. uh, how's your day going? Anyway, uh, they, <laughs> they took they took Richard to a police station in the uh, Portero Hill area, and an ambulance was called, which took him to the hospital. Richard Haig would eventually recover. Wow. Um, but he required hundreds of stitches and many surgeries. Police found Keita Haig's body face down with her hands tied behind her back on a railroad track. Uh, her head was nearly severed from her body. Robert's wallet was stolen, even though there was no money in it. On October 23rd, 1973, Anthony Harris married his girlfriend, Carolyn Patton, and he gave her Keita Haig's wedding ring. Uh, I I did read through this story before we started recording. Wow. Just went back to regular, normal life after that. Yeah. And he gave his uh, wife the victim's wedding ring. Oh, my God. God. Uh, then, well, that's it. (laughs) Good thing because I'm speechless. Uh, that's the horrific part of the story. We're going to leave it there for this week. Please be sure to tune in next week, um, for part two. Yeah. now we're going to get into how not to get murdered. So if you love true crime and you don't want to die, here's a tip for you. (laughs) This segment is not intended to be victim blaming. We thought of this segment because I read somewhere that a lot of people listen to true crime because they want to know what they can do to be safer. This is not meant to blame the victims. It's just learning from other people's experiences. Sometimes we have no suggestions for a particular episode and we'll just offer up generic tips. 
All right. What do you got, Beth? Well, we didn't get into it, but when the men tried to kidnap the three children and failed, uh-huh. it was because the kids made a big fuss. Yes. They yelled and tried to get away. And I think because uh, they made so much commotion, uh, one of the things they yelled, which I, I'm not sure why, but they were yelling, police, police. Oh, <laughs> wow. Look, smart kids. Yeah, very smart. Yeah. And uh, so the men just gave up and they took off. So, um, but Keita and Richard Haig, they thought they were just going to be get robbed. Uh-huh. So they were being compliant mm-hmm. um, because they thought, you know, we'll just give these people what they want and then they'll let us go. And then they put them in the van. Mm -hmm. And one thing that I've heard people in law enforcement say is that you're, if you're being forced into a vehicle, uh, do anything you can uh, not to get in, Mm -hmm. Uh, do anything in your power to get away, make a fuss, make some noise, uh, run away. Because once you get into that vehicle, there's a high probability that you're going to be taken to another more isolated location to be raped and or killed. Yeah. So never let them take you to a second location. Yeah. Eerie yeah. it. Um, yeah. That's, those are two, you know, good examples of experiences and um, yeah. Thank you for those tips. Yeah. Um, now we're going to get into the shout out portion of our show where we shout out any content by people of color, any other um, underrepresented groups or any true crime goodies uh, for Black History Month. Y'all, uh, I highly recommend One Night in Miami. That's One Night in Miami based on a true story in which uh, Sam Cooke, Malcolm X, Jim Brown, the football player and Muhammad Ali all hung out after Muhammad Ali's uh, fight one night. They hung out in a hotel in Miami and um, it's brilliant. Uh, directed by Regina King. It's just really, really good. Wow. Um, Sounds good. Yeah, it's yeah. really interesting too. So what do you got? Okay, so my uh, shout out this week is The Letter for the King on Netflix. Okay. I just stumbled across it. It's a fantasy show. Uh-huh. And I almost didn't watch it because I figured it was just another story about a white boy who saves everybody. <laughs> Like most of those kind of shows are. Yeah. Um, but as it turns out, the, the main character is black. Get out. Yeah. And the story takes a lot of plot twists that I wasn't expecting. Uh, it's not your usual story, uh, fantasy story. Oh. And the characters are complex, diverse, and interesting. So um, I really liked it. Um, it's oh. a six-episode series. Yeah. And I think it's intended for teenagers. Um, but like I said, I really enjoyed it so i just added it to my list it looks cool really interesting i can't do true crime all the time y'all hey yeah i I feel you i feel you i'm constantly on the lookout for kind of feel good shows yeah so um that's how i came across this one and and i did come out of it feeling good so there you go right on thanks for telling us how you gets down beth that is a letter (laughs) For the king on Netflix. Thank you. Um, yeah. By the way, One Night in Miami is on. Is it on Prime? I think I saw it on somewhere. Let me. One Night in Miami is 
available on Prime. Look at you. Look at you. (laughs) I thought I saw it somewhere. (laughs) You are. Yeah, I think it's on my watch list. Yeah, it's really good. Well, thank you. And uh, that's all for today. Where can the people find us, Beth? Our website is fruitloopspod.com. Our Facebook page is Fruit Loops Pod. And our discussion group is Fruit Loops Pod Discussion on Facebook. We are also on Twitter and Instagram at Fruit Loops Pod. And links to our sources will be in our footnotes. If you want to support the show, you can send us a donation on the Cash App. Just Google Fruit Loops Pod Cash App. Or you can become a monthly patron through our Podbean patron page. This will help us pay for things like our website and pod hosting. There's no minimum and no commitment. Even a dollar would help. And as always, we have merch for sale on our website. That's right. This is a weekly podcast and new episodes drop every Thursday. So until next time, look alive, y'all. It's crazy out there. take a moment to tell you about my podcast, Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage. In 1984, a woman named Phyllis Cottle was abducted in broad daylight, tortured, and left to die in a burning car in Akron, Ohio. At the time, I was a rookie reporter covering this horrific story. Since then, I've reported every kind of crime imaginable. I've been able to leave most of them at work, but not this one, the one that buried itself under my skin and stayed put. Phyllis Cottle was a badass woman, and I want to tell you her story. A production of Evergreen Podcasts and signature title of the Killer Podcast Network, you can find Carol Costello Presents Blind Rage wherever you get your podcasts. Discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at KillerPodcast.com. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, Shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify, and all the usual suspects.